0: Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about, and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Tulane University law professor, Amy Gaida, who's the author of the fascinating new book, Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the Right to Privacy. I'm grateful to speak to her about the book, its key insights, and how her own thinking about the trade-offs between free speech and privacy has evolved. A note for Canadian listeners, while many of the legal particularities in the book are American, the questions it raises, including about privacy in the internet age, are highly relevant for a Canadian audience. Amy, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book.
2: Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here.
1: If it's okay, let's start our conversation at a big picture conceptual level before we get into the specifics of the law. A major insight of the book is that these questions are fundamentally about balancing trade-offs between the right to know versus the right to be left alone. And I want to help listeners by defining these terms and how we might think about them. What does it mean to say the public's right to know and how far should it go? Does the public need to know about a Public individuals, say a politician's personal life, to judge him or her? And what about other public individuals, like, say, an athlete? Should a politician have less privacy than an athlete? I guess all this to say, Amy, how should we think about the right to know?
2: So that's a really wonderful question. Part of it looks at, in the United States, part of it looks at uh, who the individual is, as you suggest. So the higher up the politician is, the more the public has the right to know about that individual and that individual's behavior, uh, that individual's background. And so it's nearly always been that way in the United States. I say very nearly always, because at least initially the right to know really didn't focus so much on individuals as it did on government entities and what those entities were doing. So in other words, early courts in the 1800s would suggest that the public has the right to know about court systems. The public has the right to know uh, about police and their behavior. And what happened was that then broadened and the public then mainly through court cases, at least initially, uh, got the right to know about individuals, mainly politicians uh, and thereafter celebrities, uh, in a sense, and the courts would allow uh, certain things to be revealed uh, about those individuals because of this notion of the right to know.
1: On the other side of this issue, what are the risks of a legal regime that tilts too far in the direction of, quote, the right to be left alone, even if it's well intended? What might be lost if privacy protections are too strong in terms of the public interest?
2: That that too is a wonderful question. Uh, very often, there is an awful lot uh, to be lost if we focus too much on an individual's right to privacy. So surprisingly, presidents in the United States have been able to cloak themselves with privacy to some extent. For example, right now, and actually during his presidency, Donald Trump in part argued that he had the right to privacy in his income tax returns. And, and if you speak with any journalist, I would assume uh, that journalist would argue that no, in fact, those we do have the right to know about those tax returns. That Privacy should not cloak that sort of information. Privacy should not cloak the sort of information that would help us better understand how an individual might might lead. I mean, that's that's a bit of a wobbly line, of course, uh, because one person's right to know is another person's right to privacy. And yet that balance is what courts have done for a very long time.
1: That's a great segue to my last kind of big picture question before we get into the law. I want to ask about your own framework for thinking about these trade offs. You were previously a, a journalist and you write in, in that in that capacity, you were something of a free speech absolutist. That is to say, you were worried that privacy could become an expansive legal protection that could come at the expense of free speech. As a legal scholar, however, your thinking has evolved a bit and you're now more comfortable with robust privacy protections. Why don't you just talk a bit about your own intellectual journey on this subject? How has your thinking evolved?
2: Sure, and I I would have to point at least a little bit to the law here. When I was starting out as a journalist, I learned all about defamation and how information that is incorrect, that harms another's reputation, uh, can lead to a successful lawsuit. So I very much understood that. I learned that in school. I learned that in the newsrooms. What I didn't learn is this notion of privacy, that truthful information, the reporting of truthful information can be punished at times by law. And I think the reason why I didn't learn this so much was because back in the day when I was in in journalism uh, in the 1980s and into the, the 1990s, the right to privacy wasn't as expansive as it is now, let's say, because oftentimes back then, media very much respected people's privacy, not so much on legal grounds, but on ethical grounds. And so for example, when I would find something out when I was reporting something about um, a victim of a wrongful death, for example, or a victim of a, a murder, the information there to me ethically, even though it would it would have been interesting to some viewers, I was in television mostly, uh, I still felt this ethical sense, this decision to hold back on ethical grounds, even though I didn't fully understand that, in fact, there were some viable claims for invasion of privacy back then based on, on those things. So for me, at least looking back on my work as a journalist, it was mostly the ethical decisions I made. So the decisions, for example, not to publish videotape of a gruesome accident, for example, uh, even if the, the person didn't die or even if the person did die, not to report that sort of thing, not to use video of a very newsworthy suicide, for example. And so it was my call whether to use that video or not. And so all those sorts of decisions that I made were very much focused on ethics as opposed to anything having to do with law. And intriguingly, I think that once many more people became publishers uh, on the internet, and once those people stopped using any sort of ethics sense to make publication decisions, that's when you really saw courts coming in and starting to embrace this this right to privacy. So I like to think, even though, you know, you're right, that very much back then I was a, a free speech absolutist, you know, maybe not that, because certainly I I drew an ethical line at times and, and made those calls. And so today, it's a very familiar thing for me to read a court case in which a court uses, um, perhaps not by word, ethics, Uh, bounds that I'm very familiar with as a a former journalist.
1: That's a fascinating answer. I mean, listeners will know that a topic we frequently cover on this podcast is, you know, what George Will called statecraft as soulcraft. You know, that is to say the causal relationship between social norms and the law. And uh, so it's a fascinating example here where the two-way conversation between social norms and the law seems to be self-reinforcing, even in your own career.
2: I'll give you a, an example of that. So so when I suggest that we would go to, um, to accident scenes, I was a reporter as well as an anchor, and I would go to accident scenes. And I remember distinctly urging the photographer not to take gruesome video, but then certainly if anything was gruesome, to make the decision not to air that. And Just within the past uh, five years or so, there was a a court that decided that the mother of a man who died in a fatal car crash uh, could sue for emotional distress, could sue a website for emotional distress for publishing that sort of video. So so when I say that there's a parallel and when you suggest that same parallel, I think that's a really great example of something that very likely would not have been published in the past by a a television journalist like me suddenly being published today and having courts having to grapple with that uh, right to know versus the right to privacy and coming down at times then in favor of the right to privacy, even in surprising sorts of cases involving the First Amendment and freedom of the press.
1: So let's turn now to the law. The book tells this the story of this critical moment in 1890, when future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis co-authors a famous law review article, and we start to see the beginning of a formalistic right to privacy you make the case that privacy as a legal concept actually dates back to the 17th century. What are the origins of our current conception of privacy rights?
2: So it's interesting to to take a look at at some of the very first newspapers in the United States and reporting on an affair involving uh, the King of France. And that publication being shut down immediately. So the very first long-form newspaper in the United States was shut down, in effect, for reporting this sort of information involving someone we would certainly consider a, a public official if we had kings in the United States today. And even when the founders were discussing issues involving the First Amendment and freedom of the press... Uh, there was the suggestion that there were privacy interests there too, and that, that sort of publication that would reveal instances of, and this is a quote, male conduct would go too far. So in other words, even though there was freedom of the press, the suggestion among a couple of the founders was, you know, we do have freedom of the press in the First Amendment, and yet That press freedom is not unlimited, that if the press reports on, quote, instances of male conduct, which at the time meant um, extramarital affairs, et cetera, uh, that the press could be held liable despite the First Amendment. So we do have even the founders grappling with the same sort of thing, this right to know, including the the right to know uh, about people in power versus their right to
1: privacy. Let me pick up on that answer, Amy. You make the case in the book that the application of privacy protection in the United States has been unequal. That is to say, historically, protections have tended to benefit powerful people, namely men, but not others. Do you want to talk a bit about this uneven tradition?
2: Sure. And that that highlights that 1890 Law Review article called The Right to Privacy, Back then in 1890, there was a, a man named Samuel Warren, and he was one of the co-authors of this Law Review article, along with with Lewis Brandeis, as you suggest. And Samuel Warren was very good friends with the president, Grover Cleveland. And Grover Cleveland really hated the press Grover Cleveland believed that he had the right to privacy, and he felt that the press uh, very much overstepped when it was very interested in his relationship with a young woman who was or who had been, in effect, his adopted daughter. And so he argued openly in speeches for a right to privacy and suggested that He had this right and the media was going beyond all bounds in uh, reporting things about um, this relationship and otherwise. And you see those sorts of interests then being reflected in this law review article titled The Right to Privacy. So there's the suggestion in there, for example, that even politicians have the right to privacy and that they have the right to privacy in information from their past. And so therefore, the suggestion that the press can't report whatever it wants, uh, because there's some level of privacy, some level of protection, even for politicians' pasts in which the, the public might well be interested And we fast forward uh, a bit into then President Warren Harding. Uh, And President Warren Harding lobbied the journalists of the day uh, to respect privacy in an ethics sense. So he was a former journalist, and part of his push as president was this suggestion that, you know, we need to really respect people's privacy and that therefore you media of the day, you know, tamp things down a bit. You should give people a break uh, and not report the sorts of things that might invade their privacy. And, and that sounds like a really good thing, and it's certainly what I suggested uh, in my own uh, journalism background, I did. And yet Warren Harding was trying to hide the fact that he was having uh, two extramarital affairs, uh, including one that in which uh, the woman had a baby. And so you see then this self-interested president's arguing for uh, the right to privacy. Richard Nixon did the same thing um, right before he then removed himself from power, arguing uh, at the time Watergate was brewing that all Americans deserve the right to privacy. So you see it in that sense, journalistically being used to to tamp down very important stories that a lot of people would suggest that they had the right to know uh, about politicians.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I
1: recognize this is a a big question, so I I apologize in advance, but how have privacy protections evolved? Have they gotten stronger or weaker over time? In other words, Amy, is the right to know winning over the right to be left alone or vice versa?
2: So I would say right now it is unclear which will win out. But my worry is that the right to privacy is being used in very surprising ways to tamp down the right to know. And because we are so very concerned today and we collectively uh, about um, data privacy, about our neighbors who might have doorbells that can uh, record us about um, social media posts and things that are revealed there about people walking down the street or otherwise. There's this real sense I think in the public's mind that privacy is critically important. And you see this in court opinions as well because of course judges are people. And so it's not surprising that they're making the sorts of calls that they are and that they're writing the sorts of language that uh, that they're writing. And yet, if you don't fully understand the, the practice of journalism, some of this language can be very harmful to people just trying to do their job and work as journalists. And I'll give you just a very quick example. And this one is from a number of years ago now. But it involved an investigation by one of the networks uh, in the U.S. into a prosecutor who had exchanged graphic texts, including sending nude photos to someone he suspected or he he thought apparently was, was 13 or 14 years old. And the media showed up. When police went to arrest him. And his he killed himself before he was arrested, as the police were at his home. And his sister brought a claim for intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress on his behalf. And a court found that she had a viable claim there for emotional distress. And the court suggested that. This prosecutor had always had an outstanding record, and that the media, by showing up as it did and have and working with vigilante group that revealed this sort of behavior online, that the media had violated its ethics principles. And so what the judge did there was the judge used ethics against media to decide that this was proof. This helped prove than that the media was responsible for emotionally distressing this prosecutor. And when I think about that case as as a former journalist, I wonder how, if journalists knew about this case, how many would say, like, well, maybe I should go to to cover the arrest of a public official, because maybe this language might be used against me someday. So My worry then is that this right to privacy is being used in a way with real potential to harm what I would call uh, journalism, not just publishing, um, but journalism. And that the more courts understand the difference between what a journalist does. And the difference between what a poster on Facebook does, the better off journalism will be with regard to that language in those court opinions.
1: Oh, that's a a comprehensive answer. Thank, Thank you, Amy. At the risk of addressing a divisive topic, can you please help me and listeners understand the role of privacy In the Roe versus Wade decision on abortion rights, and how the recent Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade, directly targeted the previous interpretation about privacy. How, in other words, is the question of privacy implicated here?
2: So, the question of privacy is implicated because in the Dobbs majority, the justices decided that there are two ways that something can become a fundamental right in constitutional terms and those two ways are that the right is explicit in the constitution someplace and so here the judges decided that this right to abortion which had been cloaked with the right to privacy in in this line of cases then didn't exist because it wasn't explicit in the Constitution. The second way that the justices in the majority and Dobbs suggested that, that there might be some fundamental right within the Constitution was if the information that something like abortion, that, that right then, was deeply rooted in American history and traditions. And so, therefore, those justices suggested abortion was um, not deeply rooted in American history and um, and tradition. And so, therefore, we're not going to suggest that it's a fundamental right in the Constitution. And but what's what's interesting, I think, about um, well, interesting and and deeply troubling about the Dobbs decision is that the court suggests that there is this other. Right of privacy, and it's the right that we've been talking about today uh, mainly. Abortion is more of a right to uh, autonomy, the right to make important personal decisions without government interference, is what the Dobbs majority said. And that's very different, the Dobbs majority suggests, from this other type of the right to privacy, Uh, and that is. The Dobbs majority says the right to shield information from disclosure. And that's why I think looking back at the history of privacy and looking at what the founders thought and going way back to um, even this first long form newspaper, Will, in fact, potentially help convince the justices, you know, maybe not the most skeptical, but hopefully uh, will convince the judges that, in fact, there is uh, a right to privacy that exists uh, in the Constitution. Because we had that discussion uh, among uh, the founders, and it's certainly that's been around for a while where that might lead I certainly uh, have hopes that other rights that uh, are founded uh, on this same sort of privacy will in fact someday be upheld. Of course, I'm very worried about this, and yet it's intriguing to me that even the majority in that in the Dobbs case, makes this distinction between this uh, autonomy-related right to privacy and to, to implement important personal decisions without government interference and this right to shield information from disclosure. And where we go with that second potential fundamental right will be interesting.
1: We've been looking backwards with respect to privacy, I want to look forwards. How does the internet in general and the rise of social media in particular affect how we think about privacy? What does it mean, Amy, when everyone is effectively a public figure?
2: If we were having this discussion five years ago, I would say, boy, you're right everyone's a public figure. There were court cases and there were that suggested that if someone had 100 friends, that that instantly made them a public figure. And certainly that there's support for that in that if enough people know about you, this notion was then that you were instantly uh, propelled uh, in a sense into some level of celebrity and that therefore you had fewer rights to privacy and you also had fewer uh, lessened ability to win a defamation case, for example. So there are very critical reasons why we need to compartmentalize uh, people in that sense and decide whether or not they're, they're public figures. And now I said that was five years ago. Very recently, some courts have shifted. And some courts have suggested, for example, I think they better understand how social media works. And there's the suggestion in a fairly recent case that a post on Facebook, if that post or on social media generally, if that post is intended for a very small audience of family and friends, for example, that that doesn't give data brokers and others the ability to use that sort of information. And so, intriguingly, five years ago, I said, yeah, you got a Facebook account, you're going to be a public figure potentially. And moreover, anything you post on Facebook is public, and therefore you have no right to privacy in that information. Well, again, now that judges better understand the way social media works, and they better understand then uh, the dangers of categorizing people in uh, the wrong way, you get these sorts of much more protective decisions like the one I, I suggested.
1: Let me put a penultimate question to you. Amy, you are a leading thinker on the subject of, quote, the right to be forgotten. What does that mean and how, if it comes to be codified in law or Jewish jurisprudence, Will it affect the trade-offs that we've been discussing today?
2: Looking back on my days as a journalist, whenever there was some newsworthy arrest, we would ask the police for uh, a mugshot. And this was just commonly done. So we would get the mugshot, we would use the mugshot in our newscast, and it would um, go away. Now, again, we would only ask for mugshots from newsworthy arrests. What's happened since is courts have started to protect the right to privacy in precisely that sort of information. And mainly because of what can be done with mugshots and criminal records 10, 20 years down the line. And so you see language in court opinions in the United States today suggesting that individuals have a right to privacy in a mugshot, even when they're public officials or public figures, I should say. Um, and public officials, too, that there's some level of privacy in that mugshot because they look so bad, uh, many look guilty, and that mugshot can be used for, say, 10 or 20 years from that point to harm the individual. In addition, there's language in something called the restatement, which is sort of like a, um, a treatise that judges across the United States in state and federal courts use when deciding privacy cases. And the restatement suggests that as time goes by, there is a right to privacy in older information, including older criminal information. And when I read this as a lawyer, I was shocked, of course, because journalistically, I think we learned that wow, crimes are are a part of the public record and that therefore you can report on past crimes. But this language in the restatement and also in very recent court decisions suggests that there is this right to be forgotten that's bubbling and moving forward in a sense uh, in the United States. And that's a really good example, I think, of the way uh, journalists who are just trying to do their job uh, might in fact get into um, this privacy tangle, unsure if something that's five years old is too old or is that new enough to report. So again, these decisions are not uh, across the board. They're not, uh, they're not uh, statewide, certainly in the United States, uh, but you get that sort of language much more routinely uh, today than you did in the past.
1: That leads to my final question. What do your former journalistic colleagues think about the book? Have you gotten any feedback?
2: So that's a really wonderful question too. I do sense some uh, prickliness from some of my uh, former colleagues. And I think part of the reason is that If you learn the craft of journalism in a way that celebrates truth, and certainly that's how I learned it, it's difficult to try to wrap your head around this idea that some truth goes too far and that the internet itself is creating more and more opportunities for courts to draw that line. Whereas in the past, what I call mainstream media then never crossed the line, and so therefore courts never had the opportunity to do this. And so it's often surprising when I speak with with journalists about these ideas they're they're surprised uh, that uh, that this exists. and I think they're concerned, and maybe in a sense also just a a little bit concerned that I'm in effect reporting on this and revealing ways that courts are suggesting there's potential liability for these days.
1: Well, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. The book is Seek and Hide, The Tangled History of the, the Right to Privacy. Amy Guida, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.